0: Hi, I'm Liz Corey
1: and I'm Katie King and this is True Crime New England. What's up everybody? Hello, welcome back to another episode. Thank you for joining us on our first
0: episode of our third annual spooky Halloween extravaganza VIP spectacular spooky-wooky party time event. TM. T-fucking-M. It's that time, people. It is Halloween
1: season. We are obviously so excited, as we always are, but, you know, the weather's getting crisp. This is the first Thursday of October. Woo! So if you've been with us for a while, you already know what time it is. If you haven't been with us for a while, uh, where have you been? Welcome. And after you're done listening to this episode, go back to our other spooky Halloween, spectacular, extravaganza, VIP, love Halloween, spooky time, TM episodes. Because you'll get a whole bunch of that, but even better, and for full
0: episodes, because when it's October, we get down and spooky. That's right. Halloween season, we kind of break all true crime rules and we allow ourselves to have a little bit of fun.
1: Hell yeah. And we keep it in New England, of course. Absolutely. And I'm sorry, but New England has some really great ghost stories, Mm -hmm. historical cases. I mean, we've done two separate cases out of the Conjuring movies that have happened in New England. And there's more. And there's more we could do. The Salem Witch Trials, of course. Lizzie Borden. Lizzie Borden was another really good one. I mean, New England just, we eat that shit up. Absolutely. And today is no different. I mean, as you can tell by the title, there's a haunted tunnel that we're talking about. A haunted tunnel? What could that ever mean? But it does still stick with our true crime podcast because there is a murder. There's deaths. Oh, yeah. There's just more spooky stuff going on. just a little spooky.
0: But despite the spookiness of this episode, can you feel the chill of the crisp autumn air? Can you hear the howling of the coyotes and the wolves in the background? Do you feel the cobwebs on your skin? No? It's because we haven't gotten into it yet. But as we always do, we will start off with how we start off. And that's our business. Before we begin our spooky Halloween extra, extra fun party time extravaganza TM episode, we'll start off with a little bit of an update. It's that time, Swear Jar Total, and our next organization. You heard it. You're here for it. Let's count up how we did last time. Katie, you want to give us
1: a little recap? Oh, I sure will. Okay. Okay. So the organization that we will be donating the funds to, that we will tell you the total for in just a hot second, is the Vermont Main Street Flood Recovery Fund. Yes. That is supporting Vermont's small businesses that have been impacted by the flooding over this past summer in July. Yeah. If you guys have been keeping up, awesome. Half of Vermont was like wiped off the map with these historic floods. Really, really devastating. I mean- they're still cleaning everything up. Farmers, especially, yeah. had their fields just underwater. Yeah, it was awful. And there was a picture, Main Street, in one of the Vermont towns, there was someone kayaking down yeah. the street. I mean, small businesses were just really, really, really impacted. I mean, they have to clean everything up. Floods mm. are devastating. Yeah, Mold, damage. The shit that's in the floodwaters, the equipment replacement, electric, dan- just so devastating. Yeah. So we are donating our funds to them. Liz? Ah! <laughs> for some
0: reason, guys, I really, there are some episodes for me in this last 10 episode batch that I got passionate. There was one where I said the F word nine times. Nine, you guys. I don't know why I was just so into it. So, in the end, my grand total was forty-six f words, which compared to Katie's measly twenty-seven was pathetic. Like I'm pathetic.
1: <laughs> I thought you were gonna say I was pathetic. No, I was like, I'm oh. pathetic.
0: I'm pathetic. <laughs> which makes for an equally pathetic on my end, seventy-three dollars we
1: will be bringing that up to $83 donating $10 from the sales of our swear jar t-shirt available under the store section of our website com. no pressure just throwing it out there so a total of $83 will be going to Vermont state relief
0: yay I, I i'm so glad that we're giving that much to them and they deserve it and they deserve much more but i didn't mean to give them that much like <laughs> wow and we have one episode in the belt for the next round and already I have six so fuck
1: <laughs> <laughs> but it's looking really good for our next organization and Liz you chose this one and when you were you were like oh Katie I, I know it's not based only in New England but you know it's really did you crime and, and I was reading about it at my jaw at the floor I was like this is genius I'm so excited I mean It touches on, of course, true crime advocacy, donating Mm -hmm. to funds that really help people in the true crime world. Mm -hmm. I mean, 10 out of 10. Right. It also really touches on something that we also talk a lot about on the podcast, which is animals.
0: Yeah. So I was listening to my current favorite podcast, last podcast on the left. I'm obsessed. I listen to them when I'm driving and like when I'm cleaning and then I watch their live streams when I'm like sitting at home. Like I'm always listening or watching them. I just, I'm obsessed. They are great, great true crime podcasts. I highly, highly recommend they do fantastic research and they're hilarious. And I was listening to a really old one and an ad popped up like a commercial for this project. And this was an episode from like 2015. And I could not believe my ears. What I was hearing. And I I looked it up. And I was like. I need to get Katie on board with this. Not that I thought you weren't going to be on board. But I was like. I need to make sure this is still a thing. Because it was from eight years ago. And I was like. I need to check it out. And I was so fucking excited. To see that it was still an organization. Still active and running. It's called the Purple Leash Project. And it was Like the most eye opening moment for me, and I was so excited. Basically, what the Purple Leash Project is about, and a lot of people maybe don't consider this when they're thinking about domestic violence, and which is maybe understandable, is when someone is in a relationship where there is domestic violence, it's very difficult to leave. We know that. It's very difficult to leave those relationships when children are involved. Of course. Because what are you going to do with the children? How do you get your child away from their father or their mother? Or how, you know, the legality of that is difficult. But the point of the Purple Leash Project is for those situations where maybe children are involved, but pets are. And so when I heard this project, I was like, oh my god. The purpose of this project is to basically bring shelters for people who are trying to escape domestic violence situations to be more accommodating for people with their pets, which I absolutely love. As someone who has two cats and like nine reptiles, it just made my heart soar. I loved it. And so... I just wanted to read some of the statistics that were on their main page. It's run by Purina, which is a food brand I've used for my cats for years. And while my cat Maggie is 14 and a half pounds, <laughs> I'm going to blame that more on my generosity of giving her food because she's so freaking cute than more of their food brand. But seriously, though, they are just an amazing organization. And I'm so excited for us to be donating to them. Here are some statistics that I think are really eye-opening that are just right on their front page. You guys can go on their website and just look. It's Purina.com slash project. Just right off the bat, guys, only 17% of domestic violence shelters accept pets. 17%. That's so little. 48% of domestic abuse survivors delay leaving their relationship because they can't take their pets with them. That's a really big amount. Honestly, that's huge. Over 70% of women in domestic violence shelters report their abuser threatened, injured, or killed their
1: pet as a means of control. That is so messed up. I was going to say, that's a huge reason for staying in that relationship, in that environment, because pets, like children, are so vulnerable, and they're very sadly an easy target. I mean, how easy is it to hurt a tiny creature as opposed to hurt a large adult-sized human being.
0: I mean, for you and I, Katie, neither of those things are easy. But for someone who's abusive and messed up, probably a lot easier. So we're so excited to be giving to this organization – Guys, I really encourage you to look into the Purple Leash Project. I think it's a fantastic idea. And as someone who love, you know, Katie and I, you love your Salem so very much. She, you're petting her right as we speak. She's purring so loudly. My cats, Ladybug and Maggie, are my whole world, and I love all my reptiles too. They're my loves, my babies. So I absolutely would love to imagine that if I had to be in this kind of situation, I could pick up my girls and go and find somewhere safe to be. So please check out their website, consider donating or follow along with us and consider donating at the end of our 10 episode stretch. That would be awesome. And we would so appreciate it. But even just checking out their website would be so much. That'd be so awesome.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like that's something that, you know, like you said in the beginning of this, list, that's something that we really don't think about. No. You know, of course, there's a lot of awareness around domestic violence. And unfortunately, it's all too common. But, I mean, pets, they can't really speak for themselves. No. They can't advocate for themselves. And they are often... The first victim of that relationship, you know, abusers are not going to immediately start off by beating the shit out of their partner. They're going to throw something across the room, punch a hole in the drywall next to their head, kick the dog out of frustration and blame it on their partner who they're abusing. You know, like, you pissed me off because you didn't do the dishes, so you made me kick Fido across the room. Right. It's awful. And just thinking about apartment hunting for myself – and Salem, of course, you know, the amount of options that I saw, oh, this is within my price range. Mm-hmm. It has utilities. This is great. Oh, shit. They don't allow pets. Right. So finding somewhere in general is difficult, but finding somewhere that allows pets is so hard. Right. So just the thought of, you know, while you're hunting or while you are getting yourself out of that situation, the fact that you can leave your pet in responsible, capable hands. Mm-hmm of trained professionals and you know that they're safe and they will keep your pet safe and fed mm-hmm. and out of harm's way until you can secure a place for both of you. It's huge. So huge. And so honestly, I'm so glad that you found this. This was, I'm so excited to be donating to them. Yes. I'm so pumped. And on another good news,
0: you got some bias
1: of coffee. Shout outs there, Katie. I sure do. Woo-hoo. Brian T bought us. Wait for it. <gasps> 10 coffees. Brian T. Thank you. Brian T also included a case suggestion in his bias a coffee message. So that was pretty convincing. Yeah, that's that'll do it. That'll do it. I mean, we don't condone bribery, but we'll be looking into your case shortly, Brian T.
0: <laughs> yeah, you look forward to that. It went right on our
1: list. Absolutely, it did. And then George S, our friend, our friend, who actually also suggested the case we have today. George. George bought each of us a coffee. Thank you, George. Thank you, George. Thank you for the coffees. And thank you for the fabulous and historical haunted case we have today.
0: We are pumped. This is a great story to start off our spooky Halloween series with. I'm very excited. I'm so excited. Because it's very interesting and it's historical. And our last episode was historical. Our next episode, spoiler alert, historical. So we're just this spooky season we
1: are throwing it back yeah which we usually do we're staying on theme and we're staying on theme of true crime but also honoring you know tis the season absolutely and without further ado today we
0: will be covering the, the haunted, haunted Hoosac tunnel. tunnel all right katie that spooky season Nothing like sending it over to a goth girl to give me your sources. (laughs) What do you
1: got? I had to start it off. Wikipedia. Okay. Wikipedia. The accuracy is debatable. (laughs) It's not my only source. Sure. You know it's going to be a big boy of a case when you start off with Wikipedia. Yeah. If it has a Wikipedia page, it's a big one. Exactly. Absolutely. And it's just tradition at this point. (laughs) Honestly. As well as information from journeysandjaunts.com, New England Historical Society, which we also used on our last episode. Thank you guys very much. (laughs) Museumhack.com and americanhauntingsync.com. Cool. I too used americanhauntingsync.com.
0: I used whosactunnel.net. It had its own website. Very neat. I used morbidcuriosity, which was spelled with a K, curiosity. I used the New England Historical Society. Thank you very much, you guys. And I used a website called anomalien.com. It was kind of like a blog. Wow. I know. Very interesting. Guys, it wouldn't be a true historical episode of the Haunted Variety if I didn't take you back with a little lecture. A little sit down, take a listen as I bring you to the start the origin stories of the Hoosack Tunnel, because it wasn't always haunted. At one point, it merely was the construction of a tunnel. As who among us, we all start out as a construction of a tunnel, do we not? In a way, aren't we all just a tunnel? The Hoosack Tunnel is a four and three fourth mile long railroad tunnel that was blasted from underneath the Hoosack Mountain, which lies between the Deerfield River and the Hoosick River in Massachusetts. It's kind of debated as, like, the actual town. Florida, Massachusetts, North Adams, Massachusetts, that area. It was initially planned to be a tunneled canal, and those behind the construction of the railroad opted for a train system, It was kind of like, oh, let's do the canal. That's cool and hip. And then as they were planning it, the steam locomotive kind of started to make its way into popularity. And they were like, let's kind of switch it up and do that instead. It was like the 1850s, late 1840s. So they were like, okay, this is better. It's faster. Let's do this. It was going to get everything, including tools, materials, everything, point A, point B, way faster. So they were like, screw the canal. We're going to do a locomotive. And that was great. So in the year 1851, a local railroad company by the name of Troy and Greenfield started the construction on the project. And I want you guys to really, like, keep that date in mind, 1851, because um it took 24 fucking years to build this tunnel, which blows my mind. Maybe it's because of the time. Yeah. Maybe that's just how construction went back then. Maybe it's because they were digging through a a whole ass mountain. I don't know. But that's a long time. And I also point out that there actually had been talks of starting this project like in the Hoosack Mountain as early as 1819. So this project had been thought about for over like 30 years And finally, they were like, all right, let's get to it. And then it took another 25 years to be built. (laughs) Yeah, They must have treasured this tunnel as their baby because seriously, it took their whole lives. And I'm sure some people didn't even live long enough to see it come through to its fruition, as we will see, actually.
1: Yeah, it actually, this tunnel was the second longest tunnel in the world, which is crazy. And the longest tunnel in North America until 1916. Wow. It took them so long to get that bitch built that the Civil War started and ended. (laughs) And they were literally still chipping away, chipping away at the tunnel. Their estimated budget was about $2 million. The tunnel was completed in all of its glory, like you said, Liz, in 1875. $21 million later. That is so much Money
0: for back then? Yeah, that's nuts. And I, I can't believe that the Civil War started and ended in that time. That's honestly kind of hilarious.
1: Yeah. Like, what? Why even bother at that point? New England is known for granite as well as deposits of big ass rocks. I mean, if you go back in history, we basically were carved out by glaciers. Right. So there's a lot of, I mean, our mountains. That's how it all was carved out. Right. So the tunnel was aptly named because husak is an Algonquian word meaning place of stones. Ace. I didn't know that. From start to finish, they excavated two million tons of rock. Holy shit. Tons. That's a- Two million tons? Tons. The Ooh. unit. Tons. Wow.
0: <laughs> Crazy. That's a lot. Wow. And, you know, two million tons of rock is a lot. But at what cost? Not- 22 or 21 million dollars. Yes, technically speaking, that is monetarily the cost. How about the lives of over 200 men? How does that sound? A lot more expensive. Because with inflation, 200 men is really like 400 men in today's uh, loss of life, if you think about it. And these men died from all sorts of different causes. Fire, explosion,
1: tunnel collapses, Oh, and murder. Dun-dun. The tunnel quickly was named the Bloody Pit. (laughs) Dun-dun. Very macabre. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't want to
0: work there. One of the reasons it took so long for the tunnel to be built was because, no, I mean, it was dangerous work conditions. And, you know, the fact that all of these tragic accidents were happening and all these accidents seemed to leave behind... More than just a resting place for these poor souls. It was more like these people were, I don't know, haunting the tunnel, reminding the people that uh, they were still there, they were still lurking, they were still working on the project, perhaps. And because of these certain incidents, perhaps, and the fear of the locals, the project often stalled. Because there were several times where a lot of the workers just kind of walked away due to fear. And today, we're going to tell you about a few of those incidents. And God, are they creepy.
1: And a little murderous at at points. On March 20th, 1865, three so-called explosive experts. I don't know if those existed at the time, but yeah, sure. That's what they were called. Probably self-proclaimed. Right. (laughs) Attempted to use nitroglycerin. Yes, the same thing you take if you're having chest pain. (laughs) To blow up some of the rock and speed up the construction. Which honestly was good because before they were using
0: black powder, which was effective. But this nitroglycerin made much larger dents in the mountain, which was way more effective for them. So that's great. But now we know that it just helped their hearts a little bit.
1: Ned Brinkman, Billy Nash, and Ringo Kelly primed the charge to prep for the explosion and took off sprinting to the safety bunker. It was actually Ringo that had been the one to set off the explosion himself. You know, in my mind, it's like in a cartoon where they have that big box with the lever and he pulls down on the lever and the wire connects and then boom. Right, right. That was what was going on in my head. Right. So Ringo was the one to make the explosion go boom. Right. And I think they'd done this before. I would hope so, if they're so-called explosive experts. Right. Both Ned and Billy were still running for cover and way too close to the explosion itself. And they were actually buried alive under tons, not just an exaggeration, the unit, Mm -hmm. tons of fallen debris and rubble. Mm -hmm. It was actually rumored that Rango might have done this intentionally. Right. Right. And so this is really, like, even if it was an accident, you know, just hearing that you murdered two of your coworkers and people think you did it on purpose. Not going to be popular with the locals. And that's really sad. Like, what if you're feeling so guilty it was an accident and, oh, my God, this is so awful. They both died traumatic deaths because of me. Like, I Mm -hmm. literally killed these people. Mm -hmm. And then people are gossiping and saying that I did it intentionally. And it was hard to tell, too, at that point, if they had died from being crushed
0: or if they were trapped in there. Like, it was so unknown. And, of course, with the what they probably had no idea at this point, but what we know, there might have been poisonous gas or suffocating gas in there that could have killed them. Like, they could have been killed in a lot of different ways. So it was tragic in so many different aspects. So to be a, really responsible for that must have been really... Really fucking terrible for him.
1: Just a few days after this incident, Ringo disappeared. His body wasn't found until over a year later, Mm. 10 days later, after this explosive incident, Mm. on March 30th, 1866. He was found two miles inside the tunnel Mm. in almost the exact same area of the explosion where Ned and Billy had been killed. Yeah. Ringo had been strangled, which is so crazy.
0: Like, what? Where did that Where did that come from? Who strangled Ringo? And I, I think, you know, obviously they eventually were able to get to the bodies of Brinkman and Nash, and they were able to recover them, and that's really sad. but so the fact that they found so much later Ringo's body in that same spot. But he was strangled? What's up with that? Is that the
1: murder that we're talking about? Who knows? Deputy Sheriff Charles F. Gibson estimated that Ringo had been murdered between midnight and 3.30 a.m. that morning, despite no one having seen or heard from him for a year. So weird. So I think that he just went off the grid because he was so guilty and distraught. Yeah. And then people were thinking, too, well... You know, the police and the deputy, they really can't pinpoint any suspects. I mean, they know the time of death-ish. They know the cause of death. and They have no idea who could have done this. And so rumors very quickly began to fly. He was found almost in the exact location where the other two bodies were found. Mm-hmm. He had contributed to their deaths in some way, shape, or form, whether accidental or intentional. What if the spirits of Ned Brinkman and Billy Nash had lured him to the tunnel, and then their ghostly, cold hands strangled him as revenge. Which is, you know, back then maybe
0: what happened, or that was the story. And so, of course, now this was the gossip. This was the rumor. And so everyone thought it was curse now. And so people literally were walking off the job because they were like, yeah, nope, I'm not working at a haunted tunnel where somebody was murdered. Of course, these people thought that maybe Ringo Kelly was murdered by these spirits. And if you believe that, that's pretty scary. I don't know if I would want to work there either. Not gonna lie. Because these people, they had crazy hours. They were working there early in the morning till late at night. You know, by lantern or flame, you know, so that's creepy. I'll give it to you. That's
1: pretty creepy. I wouldn't want to work there either. No. No. In 1868, a cavalry officer and mechanical engineer named Paul Travers arrived to tour and examine the tunnel. He had received a letter from someone at the construction company asking him to come out and do an inspection because of, quote, all of the strange noises coming from inside. The miners, quote, complained constantly of hearing a man's voice cry out in agony, right. and they began refusing to so much as set foot inside the tunnel after dark. Even though the men were assured that the sounds were from, you know, the winds, rocks settling, you're chipping away inside a mountain. I mean, they're right. miners, you know, canary in a coal mine. Right. If the canary stops singing, you need to get the fuck out of there because of the buildup of toxic gases from all of the rock. Right. So they're thinking, you know, gases are shifting and rocks, and you're inside a mountain and it makes noises. And, you know, it's probably just that. And they were like, no, no, I'm walking out of here. Put me on a different job site. I'm not coming back here. Yeah. This shit is haunted. So Paul was like, okay, fine. I'm here to inspect this so called haunted tunnel. <laughs> Woo hoo hoo, quote unquote. Right. I'm going to go inside and I'm not going to hear Jack shit. Right. He said that once he was inside, he heard what sounded like a man groaning out in pain. Mm. And he stated, quote, I haven't been this frightened since Shiloh, which was a battle in the Civil War. Yeah. That was still going on at the time, (laughs) as we have established. Right. So this literal inspector, like his whole job is to go in and examine the tunnel. And he's like, "Um, he's like, yeah, no, they're right. This is haunted. Yeah. He's like, yeah, no way. This is. Yeah.
0: He even said that it sounded like the moaning and crying reminded him of injured men on the battlefield. Which, this is the Civil War. We're talking, like, muskets and cannons and shit. Yeah, this guy, like, he heard some awful stuff. And it's reminding him of the inside of the Stuttle. That's really scary. That's really messed up. So, when you have a really burly, muscular Civil War officer being like, yeah, nope, to a tunnel. You trust that burly Civil War officer. You do. And despite hearing all these loud, mournful cries, you know, the men would lift up their lamps, their lanterns, their torches, whatever. And they would run out through the tunnel that was so eerie and creepy, but they wouldn't see anyone. It was empty. There was no workers. There was no ghosts, whatever. They didn't see anything. So that made it even more creepy for them. Later, Travers wrote a letter, and he theorized that the spirits were none other than Brinkman and Nash, who had been killed in that explosion, and that he thought that maybe they were looking to hunt down none other than Ringo Kelly, and that even though they had already probably were the ones that had killed him, they were hunting down his spirit even in the afterlife. Which is like crazy revenge, man. Like, you got him. Like, you did it. All done. (laughs) There is another event in the Hussack Tunnel history that was caused by man, but this time it can be almost assured that it was accidental and not intentional. We can't really be so sure about that as far as it goes with Ringo Kelly. On October 17, 1868, 13 men were on a construction crew that descended into what was called the central shaft of the Hoosac Tunnel. There had been men coming in and tunneling from both East and west sides. And these 13 guys were basically making this like central shaft in the middle, obviously, because it was central to ventilate the tunnel. And above this central shaft sat this building, very, you know, like a makeshift building that was essentially a storage room, which was literally full, stocked full of flammable materials. Any material that could catch on fire, it was held in this
1: building. And this building was also really important because it was also a surface pumping station, Mm. which we'll talk more about the purpose that that served in a second. But no, like you said, Liz, this building is just floor to ceiling with oil, power lamps, literal explosives, gasoline, and honestly, probably kindling. Right. Like it was a recipe for actual disaster. Right. Four men were inside the building, you know, operating, doing their job. When a spark from the shaft, which was not uncommon, given that you're literally hanging out, releasing toxic gas and fumes from inside rock. Right. This spark set off an explosion and traveled up the shaft, up into the building. Yeah. And because the building was, as we just said, littered with gasoline, actual explosives. Literally everything you can think of. Everything you can think of. probably. Dry newspaper, like gunpowder, oil,
0: like power lamps, literally probably tree stumps. Like literally
1: everything matches. matches literally. Matches everything. nuts. The four men working inside were able to evacuate, but they couldn't safely get inside the building to bring up the 13 men. Yeah. Now trapped down in the shaft almost 600 feet below ground. That's a, such a far way. That's, oh my god, yeah. And so they're trying frantically to put out this fire, but all of the stuff inside is just fueling the flames. And then the building ended up collapsing in on itself and into the shaft, filling the shaft with tools, yeah, debris, mm-hmm. remnants of equipment, pieces of explosive, like yeah. actually everything. And it was so just really, really tragic. Yeah. And so now there was all this debris and
0: then fire on top of it. It was just a mess. Several days later, once the fire had kind of died down enough, a miner named Mallory was lowered down to the shaft by way of rope and bucket, which I found entertaining. He was sent down to look for any sort of survivor. And fun fact, unfun fact, before he went down, he actually wrote out his will, which should show you how dangerous this simple mission was. So when Mallory was sent down, You know, he was sent down, blah, blah. And when they pulled him back up, he was nearly unconscious. The reason he was nearly unconscious was because of all the fumes that had been released that were created down because of the explosion. When he arrived, however, he managed to utter in his almost unconscious state, no hope, which is so tragic. Because of the event that happened, the building burning down, a pumping station had been destroyed. So now this shaft underground had filled up with water. So not only was it filled with these toxic fumes, it was filled up with water. And how do you escape water when you're in a tunnel? You don't. (laughs) Spoiler alert, you do not. Eventually, some of the bodies of the miners started to resurface,
1: with it being over a year later before the last one did reappear. And it was really just devastating, honestly, the whole situation. And then, you know, they're trying to fix everything and there's bodies down there and now 13 people are dead and that's awful and how do you tell their families? Right. And then as the water is slowly filling up in the shaft, an arm floats up. Yeah. A leg, a foot, clothing maybe, a shoe. Right. Right gradually over the next year remains were just being lifted up to the surface by this water Ugh. and then when the last body was retrieved and actually was the last several bodies it was discovered because this raft like thing floated up and they realized that even though you know the minor not minor in age but minor in job right was lower down and he came up and said no hope and he couldn't breathe. And, mm. you know, they were thinking everybody had to have died pretty instantly. Yeah. It was discovered that they had survived on there for quite some time. Yeah. Long enough to build a raft. Yeah. To try of float up to the top. But eventually they all died from asphyxiation, which is a really hard way to go as is. <laughs> right. But when you are building a raft and you have hope of survival and everyone around you is slowly starting to asphyxiate as the chemicals build up around you and the water is floating and it's cold and it's dark Yeah, and you're running out of oxygen. Right. Yeah, that's a really horrific way to go.
0: It was determined that they actually died from suffocation caused by the vapors of something called naphtha gas, which is naphtha is actually an essential part of what makes up plastic. So that was something that it makes more sense now because they were breathing in basically like plastic air which is yeah. terrible and of course like you said it's dark it's damp they build a raft they're watching their friends and their coworkers suffocate that must be so horrifying
1: probably by the light of a kerosene lantern yeah oh
0: god yeah awful stuff
1: while the miners were
0: still in the shaft, like there were still bodies that were needed to be recovered. They still hadn't resurfaced. There were reports from locals around town and construction workers that were still working at the site that there were like vague shapes and muffled whales that were heard and seen around the site. And those who were still working on the tunnel claimed that they would see ghosts of the 13 men carrying around shovels, often surrounded by mist or snow. And that spooky part, you'll never guess, guys. When the spirits would disappear, there would be no footprints left in the snow. Ooh. Interestingly enough, though, when the blasts of the bodies were finally recovered and subsequently buried, you know, laid to rest, the other miners stopped seeing these bizarre visitors.
1: Ooh. Spooky. That's crazy. Four years after the explosion incident, the second one, with the thirteen men. Right. On June twenty fifth, eighteen seventy-two, Dr. Clifford Owens and drilling operation superintendent James McKinstry entered the Husack Tunnel at eleven thirty PM of all times. Perfect time to go into a haunted tunnel. I guess it's better than like three AM, but <laughs> I, I guess if I had to choose, I'd go at eleven PM. Sure. <laughs> They were hearing a lot of gossip and commotion about how the tunnel was, for lack of a historical term, haunted as fuck. Sure. As Dr. Clifford was a man of science and reason, he determined that the tunnel was fine and that people were just hearing the wind or rock settling with the shift of gases, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. After his nighttime excursion into the tunnel, he wrote, quote, We had traveled about two full miles into the shaft, which, might I remind you people is the same two-mile distance that Ringo Kelly was found murdered and his two co-workers were killed by being buried alive. Right. When we finally halted to rest, except for the dim, smoky light cast by our lamps, the place was as cold as dark as a tomb. James and I stood there talking for a minute or two and were just about to turn back when suddenly I heard a strange, mournful sound. It was just as if someone or something was suffering great pain. The next thing I saw was a dim light coming along the tunnel from a westerly direction. At first, I believed probably a workman with a lantern. Yet, as the light grew closer, it took on a strange blue color and appeared to change shape almost into the form of a human being without a head. Ugh. The light seemed to be floating along about a foot or two above the tunnel floor. In the next instant, it felt as if the temperature had suddenly dropped and a cold, icy chill ran up and down my spine. Wow. The headless form came so close that I could have reached out and touched it, but I was too terrified to move. For what seemed like an eternity, McKinstry and I stood there gaping at the headless thing like two wooden Indians. The blue light remained motionless for a few seconds as if it were actually looking us over, then floated off toward the east end of the shaft and vanished into thin air. I am above all a realist nor am I prone to repeating gossip and wild tales that defy a reasonable explanation. However, in all truth, I cannot deny what James McKinstry and I witnessed with our own eyes. Wow, that's powerful. He's a believer now. Yeah, he is. (laughs) Damn. On October 16th,
0: 1874, a local hunter who was fairly well known in the small community completely vanished. It wasn't until three days later when a search party that had been looking for him finally found him. Frank Webster was found stumbling along the banks of the Deerfield River, not too far from the Hoosack Mountain, and where the tunnel had been in its final years of construction. When they found him, he was very obviously in a complete state of shock. As he was mumbling and he was falling over, he looked drunk, really, it sounds like. And he wasn't making literally any sense when they finally were able to like calm him down and like, be like, okay, Frank, what's going on, buddy? Like you've been gone for three days. What happened? He told those who found him that he was walking near the Husek tunnel. He heard strange voices and they basically ordered him to go into the tunnel. And so he was like, aye, aye. And he went right into the tunnel. Like it lured him in there essentially. And he claims that he saw ghostly figures And they were wandering around him, floating past him. Obviously, they were like ghostly. They were white and glowing and floating and not touching the ground and cold and icy. He then claimed that there was a pair of invisible hands that quite literally snatched the hunting rifle that he was holding away from him. And then supposedly these hands beat him with his own rifle, which I thought was kind of silly. But he doesn't. He claims he doesn't remember it, but at some point he leaves the tunnel. He gets out of there somehow. And people thought this was kind of crazy. They were like, okay, Frank, this might be a little bizarre, but they immediately were like, okay, but it might not be bizarre because not only was Frank's hunting rifle missing, but he had bumps and bruises all over his head and like his upper area, right where he said he was beat with his rifle that were consistent with being beat with a rifle. And they also were considering the fact that there had been so much history with the Hussack tunnel and all these ghosts and the miners and the shovels and the explosions and the possible murder and blah and blah. And they were like, okay, like maybe he was lured into this tunnel. His rifle was taken from him. He was bat, bat, bat right on the head with his rifle and then confused and stumbled out. I'm a skeptic, so I don't know. (laughs) I theorize maybe he was missing in the woods for three days, and that's why he was all bumbled up, you know? Maybe he lost his rifle. Maybe he was having a manic episode or a schizophrenic episode, and he really did get
1: lost. Yeah, or just hungry, cold, dehydrated. Right. But pretty interesting, nonetheless, given the history of the tunnel. On February 9th, 1875, the first train went through the tunnel pulling three flat cars and a boxcar with 125 people on board. Yay. In the fall of 1875, a fire tender on the Boston and Maine rail line named Harlan Mulvaney was taking a wagon load of wood into the tunnel. He had just barely gotten inside when he suddenly turned his horses around and drove them at a rapid speed out of the tunnel. It
0: sounds like it was really sudden, like no clear reasoning, just like going through, going through and all of a sudden, nope.
1: And Mm -hmm. then whipped around. The horses and wagon were found abandoned in the woods three days later, but Harlan was never found. Yeah, so weird.
0: And his team was found too, and they were like, I don't know. They had no answer. It was weird. There is one story, however, that is a positive one. And that is the story of a railroad worker named Joseph Impoco, who worked for the Boston and Maine rail line for so many years, who claimed he knew the tunnel was haunted, but he was not scared of it. He was like, whatever. I don't care. I don't believe in ghosts. Except he actually had a great respect for the spirits that loomed through there. He said, you know, you've had a tough life. You guys, you know, think that you gave your lives to work for this tunnel. Like you guys are the best homies, whatever. And so he actually claims there was two separate occasions where a ghost in the tunnel saved his life. And I think they're kind of endearing moments. Yeah. Joseph claims that once he was working at cleaning the tracks of ice when a very clear, distinct voice called out to him saying, run, Joe, run. And when Joseph looked back, you'll never guess. He saw a whole ass train heading for him. Why didn't he hear it? It's not like he had headphones put in his ears. I don't know. There was no one in sight, though. There was just the train coming. There was no person, nobody hanging outside the window of the train saying, Joe, watch out or whatever. There was no one. So that ghost saved his life because it got him to realize there's a train coming. He got out of the way safely.
1: Just six weeks after the first incident, Joe was using a heavy iron crowbar to work on freeing some train cars that had been frozen onto the tracks. He was prying at one of the cars when he heard the same voice yell, Joe, Joe, drop it, Joe. And he immediately let go of the crowbar. Mm -hmm. In the split second after he let go, the crowbar was instantly thrown against the tunnel wall Mm -hmm. by over 11,000 volts of electricity. Wow. He realized that the overhead power line had short-circuited and would have absolutely no doubt killed him if he had still been holding onto the metal crowbar. Absolutely. And when this happened
0: to Joseph, this was in the 1900s. This was a little later. So there was electricity and like volts and stuff like that. It was a little bit later after the tunnel had been established. But I thought that was pretty neat that, listen, again, I'm a skeptic, but that's pretty interesting. Twice in six weeks. Wow. And I mean, that absolutely would have killed him.
1: Yeah, and the train, too, of course. He would have been a pancake. Absolutely. Joe soon left his job and began working further out of the area, but every year he would return to the tunnel and give thanks to the ghost who saved his life twice. He soon developed a superstition that if he didn't go back to the tunnel, something bad would happen to him. He kept this up all the way until 1977, when Joe's wife was really sick and he ended up staying home with her, Instead of going to the tunnel like he had planned. Yeah. Joe's wife ended up passing away a few months later, and Joe believes that this is because he didn't go and give thanks to the ghost. Interesting. Yeah. I would be more believable of that if his wife died, like, that day.
0: Or, like, the next day or something, yes. But her dying a few months later just makes me think she died a few months later. That's
1: what I was thinking. Or maybe the ghost was, like, he has six months... (laughs) Four weeks, nine days, and 37 seconds. (laughs) And
0: then I'll enact it. Yeah. (laughs) That's a little silly. And it wasn't really until the 1970s and 80s that paranormal investigators, like, began to search through the Hoosack Tunnel. And that was kind of really when that stuff got popular and, you know, really into that kind of thing. Um looking for spirits and ghosts, trying to find the souls of the unfortunate miners who met their fate not only in the accidents we talked about, but there were a whole bunch of other men who died just from explosions and, you know, debris falling and just workplace accidents that don't happen these days because there are safety regulations and also because this workplace was just really dangerous in general. So, People still think to this day that it's very haunted, and it may very well be, but I don't know. You guys have to decide for yourself.
1: Part-time ghost hunter Allie Allmaker wrote that she went to the tunnel with a railroad official in 1984. She said she had the sensation of someone standing really close to her. Mm. She also said that several students from North Adams State College visited the tunnel one night and left a tape recorder running in the shaft. Mm. The very same shaft where the 13 people had passed. Interesting. They left it there, and when they came back and played it after, they heard what sounded like multiple muffled human voices. Interesting. The Husak tunnel is clearly very well documented with its spooky occurrences and multiple ghost sightings. And, you know, there also was a murder that took place in there, which is, you know, the essence right. of true crime. There's an unsolved murder. And because it was the 1800s, people were thinking, oh shit, the vengeful spirits. Absolutely. And just all of the shit that went down, just the really bad luck, Mm -hmm. all of the deaths. I mean, the tunnel in total took 200 lives that we know of. I mean, I'm sure that some people went in and didn't come out and they might not have been as well documented. Right. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. So guys, we obviously want to know what you think. Do you believe in ghosts, eh? Do you think the Husak Tunnel is haunted? We want to hear your opinions. So please tell us what you think. Find us on our Instagram and Twitter at True Crime N E. Oh, lowercase. Or you can send us an email with your thoughts and your feelings regarding this episode at True at gmail.com.
1: We also, of course, have a website, TrueCrimeNE.com. You go to our handy-dandy submission tool and use it to send us your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts about this case, other cases we have covered. If you would like to leave a suggestion, which we highly recommend, you can be anonymous if you so choose. You can leave your name if you so choose. If you do leave your name and we decide to cover the episode that you have suggested to us, We'll get a little shout out at the top of the episode. Thank you again to one of our friends of the pod, George S. Thanks, George. For suggesting this case to us. We always love when we can cover a case that someone suggests, especially if we can do it for our spooky Halloween party VIP extravaganza TM.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Another great way to maybe earn a little shout out at the top of the episode is to scroll down just a little further and go to our Buy Us a Coffee page where you can hit the button that says thank you and go to our I have a coffee link on there. You can buy myself a coffee and list a non-coffee related beverageino. But as we always tell you guys, you know, no bribes allowed. Wink, wink, wink. And you don't have to spend any money on us at all whatsoever. Another great way to show your appreciation for us that is free ninety nine minus the ninety nine is if you use Spotify as your preferred listening platform, you go to our page and subscribe if you haven't already. And you could also give us a star rating. If you're more of an Apple Podcasts kind of listener, you can do the same thing on there as well as write a written review if you so choose. But again, as we always say, you don't have to really do much. Just being here and listening, that is more than we could ever ask for always. And we always appreciate you, especially during
0: this very spooky, very fall time. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.